Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Marshall Brown from Marshall Brown Projects and the Illinois Institute of Technology. Marshall is an architect, urban designer, principal of Marshall Brown Projects, and director of the Master of Landscape Architecture program at the Illinois Institute of Technology. He recently founded the Urbanism Art and Culture Think Tank New Projects in collaboration with curator Stephanie Smith, is on the editorial board of the Journal of Architectural Education, and his projects and essays have appeared in several books and journals. Despite the planning profession's origins and visionary thinking about the future of our cities, many contemporary planners are often too caught up in the political battles of today. As a consequence, many planners feel disconnected from the idea of imagining how the cities of tomorrow may have different needs and functions than the cities of today. Marshall is here tonight to discuss some of his recent projects and to share some provocative thoughts about the future of American cities. Please join me in welcoming Marshall Brown. Thanks for inviting me. I'll jump right in. <laughs> so yes, as was mentioned, I have a practice based here in Chicago. It's called Marshall Brown Projects. Uh, I would say if I have a specialty, it's um, so far visions for the future of cities. Uh, I would say that I practice urban design as an expanded, I really think of urban design as an expanded form of architectural practice um, that engages buildings, landscape, infrastructure, real estate, etc. Um, and I would also say that for me, those fields are discursive cultural practices first, and that sometimes, if we're lucky, our work can result in building. In addition, uh, as was mentioned, I also uh, run a little storefront called New Projects in collaboration with Stephanie Smith from the Smart Museum of Art. Um, this is an image of our building. It's the Overton Hygienic Company. Some of you may know it at 36th and State. Um, we occupy the storefront on the corner. It's a kind of laboratory, exhibition, social, and production space. Um, it was really found, this is an image of the website, New Projects. Uh, new-projects.org. It was really founded upon the observation that American cities are somewhat misunderstood and that we need new projects that reach across the creative fields um, to generate new thinking about the future of American cities. So we do lots of different kinds of things. We hold lunchtime round tables, which we then try to publish in various journals. Or we also hold, um, we host events by other organizations. This is an image from uh, Iker Gill's Moss Context Analog. Some of you may know his online design journal, Moss Context, and every year he has a kind of um, all-day marathon design symposium. But then, of course, I do um, quote-unquote real work. I don't like to draw a kind of theory-practice divide because I think in this day and age it's a little bit banal. But that being said, um, recently I completed a master plan for the Washington Park Consortium, looking at the future of their neighborhood, what you do with all the land. I'm not gonna talk about that project today because you're gonna read about it soon enough in the paper. And then, of course, um, about a year and a half ago, or almost two years ago, I was on one of the finalist teams for the Navy Pier redevelopment together with Martha Schwartz Partners and Davis Brody Bond, and this was our proposal. And I'm not gonna talk about that because you probably all read about it already. I'm gonna talk about some other things. And then of course, um, I have a new role, um, as if I didn't have enough kind of diversity in my portfolio. I was recently asked to step up and become the um, director of the Master of Landscape Architecture program at IIT. I'm not a landscape architect by training, but why should that stop me? Um, we have a new dean, uh, Vil Aretz, who has taken over the helm of the school. Some of you may have heard the, um, the College of Architecture as a new dean as of about a year ago. This was our recent uh, prospectus, which was published called Nowness. And um, the entire college, as a matter of fact, has turned its view again towards uh, urbanism. And so all of the curriculum 
architecture, landscape, PhD programs are refocusing on this idea of rethinking the metropolis. So that being said, um, a forthcoming change is that uh, the Master of Landscape Architecture program is becoming a Master of Landscape Architecture and Urbanism degree program. So we're basically trying to create a hybrid, which was one of the reasons I was asked to take over the helm. So um, if people are interested in that, we can talk about that during the Q&A. That being said, um, the title for tonight's talk is The Speculative City. And I think it's a little boring um, for me to spend an hour uh, just doing a kind of um, live portfolio review. So uh, what I'd like to do is actually talk about a series of ideas and use a couple of projects to, sh to kind of explain them. Um, in her essay, Community Property, Enter the Architects or the Politics of Form, Dana Cuff, who some of you may know her writing, explains that in contemporary development disputes, competing interests often demand that architects rise to the level of what she calls a visionary in the public realm, quote unquote. And so one of the things I've been asking myself um, more precisely recently has been, could it be that in our neoliberal era where centralized planning has been increasingly uh, challenged, um, I would say in favor of market-based developer-driven urbanism, that the response to that condition could be the condition itself. In other words, I'm interested in the idea that we could somehow reintegrate the metropolis of speculative capital somehow with the metropolis of speculative vision. So I'm not talking about so much the practice of resistance here, how do we resist the market, but rather the ambition to construct possible other and perhaps somehow even better worlds within that context. So um, there are a series of ideas, which I'll sort of run through quickly, five of them, um, by using um, one project that I've been working more recently, plus a little prehistory for context. So the first topic is power. And of course, you all know who this gentleman is or was. Um, I would say this is the archetype of an urban designer architect, right? Daniel, Daniel H. Burnham, proud, confident, builder of big buildings, planner of cities, AIA president, inventor of the modern corporate architecture firm. But here's another image. Burnham sitting amongst his clients and fellow commercial club members, looking slightly sheepish, hunched over, out of place conspicuously and typically appears to be the only one not wearing a tie. This image, I think, shows more of the truth about what our practice, uh, the position our practice holds um, in the world. Architecture almost always has a strong relationship to worldly power, but architects are not the, really the source of that power. And so the money and resources that produce architecture come from those other men in the room. So. Um, Again, as a little prehistory, I'd like to talk about this project. In 2003, I was hired by a New York City Councilwoman Letitia James, soon to be public advocate, Letitia James, um, to help her hijack the architect Frank Gehry's Atlantic Yards project in Brooklyn, New York. Um, some may know it as the Nets Arena project, which has now uh, been completed by shop architects. So Gary had, of course, been hired in 2003 by the developer Bruce Ratner to master plan for a basketball arena and 16 skyscrapers over the MTA Vanderbilt rail yards. That was nice. It's like when the refrigerator goes off. You didn't even realize it was on. Um, this is a quick overview um, of my own project for the Atlantic Yards. Basically, where we cut the site, I'm going to show you a quick overview. There's a video that's going to play in a second here. Basically what we did was we cut the site into smaller chunks, allowing for a redistribution of the site among multiple developers and architects, um, which generated the possibility of what I would call a kind of landscape of difference, which stitched the neighborhoods which are currently divided uh, by the rail yard, now even more divided by the basketball arena, um, but also creating somehow a continuous pedestrian network through the site. So we redistributed the density across the site in a way that responds to local scales and distant views. So I'll show you the short video and then sort of explain um, some other things about it.
To view the video shown during this portion of the presentation, visit the APA website www.planning.org slash Tuesdays at APA and search for the October 2013 Tuesdays at APA Chicago program. So these are some uh, photomontage views of the project. Um, this image is actually named after Andrew Parmentier's botanical and horticultural garden, which was one of the first things to inhabit the site back in the 1820s. But again, on this topic of power, um, I want to go back to really talking about the, what happened sort of behind the scenes of the actual design proposal. What I'm going to show you now are images of a correspondence I had with Mr. Frank Gehry after he resigned with, from the project in 2009. In this letter that's up here on the screen, I um, actually suggest to him that the architects and our plans were not what the conflict over the yards were about. Here I highlighted a little passage which says that to begin with, I feel as though I owe him an apology for the letter was long overdue. More than five years had passed since the struggle over the Atlantic yards had begun and none of us know exactly how long it will continue. It continues on today, of course. But I believe that the opportune moment for you and I to begin a conversation has finally arrived. I say to him that I think this process could have been much more productive for everyone except for myself, a young designer who jump-started his career by trying to hijack a project from Frank Gehry. And I hope that the humor in the last statement was not lost on him, both because of its sheer absurdity and because, as both he and I know, the architects and our plans were never the core issue in dispute. Much to my surprise, he actually replied. Um, so here you can see an email. Um, the, uh, some names have been redacted to protect the guilty. Um, what's most interesting is that his response, in his response, he says, quote, the architectural profession is weak and infantilized by its inability to take the reins. Now, I think what's really kind of shocking and strong about this statement is that this is coming from one of, if not the most popular and influential architects uh, on the planet, and that makes it a very shocking statement. Following our correspondence, I had a chance to have breakfast with Mr. Gary in New York. My general sense that he was that he had resigned from the project out of frustration over his own inability um, to take the reins in that case. So this is a concept, um, again, another concept uh, photomontage for a tower at the east end of the site. I have a general interest, I would say, in combining things that don't belong, um, putting things that don't belong together. So for example, here you see samples. You might read samples of architecture by both Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe, two very distinct architectural camps combined in the same building. And this, of course, is the famous uh, drawing of Mies van der Rohe's Friedrichstrasse skyscraper project. Um, but more than projections of the real, I think these kinds of images have historically worked to expand the urban imagination. And so I would say, as architects, where our power really lies is in the creation of these kinds of visionary pictures. That even when they don't immediately become reality, they expand the possibilities, which in fact, I would say, is a much larger field of operations. So the next topic is uncertainty. Of course, uh, Gary did several schemes for the Atlantic Yards. He eventually resigned. Ellerby Beckett, on the bottom left, um, did a very conventional arena design. And then Shop Architects, on the bottom right, was hired to kind of put a fancy skin around it. And it opened last year. This was an interesting editorial from the former Times critic uh, Nikolai Orosov where he brings up a couple of issues with large urban projects as it relates to uncertainty. Number one is that you don't often know what the architecture looks like at the beginning. So, and big projects take so long that the political, economic, and general context for development can change along the way, as we all know. So uncertainty, I would say, for architects like myself, creates a difficult challenge when we're charged with representing things which are not yet fixed. 
So in my own work, rather than repressing that uncertainty with fuzzy digital renderings, I try to develop images using photomontage and appropriation in order to create a more complex impression of the project with regard to either authorship or the fixity of the design. So these images are always constructed using cut and paste technique on top of large digital prints. The architectural elements are all appropriated from various works, built and unbuilt from the history of modern architecture. And there's also a general interest in my work, I think, with, in hybrids, architectures and spaces that are uncertain to a varying degree about what exactly they are. And so either formally, programmatically, aesthetically, um, these things are kind of a little bit confused about what their actual kind of nature or typology is. Sometimes I use the metaphor of the chimera, the mythical uh, lion-headed goat dragon to describe these things. Um, so I no longer live in New York. I live in Chicago, which for me is the center of the world. And um, recently, this summer, as a matter of fact, I had an exhibition in a commercial gallery in the West Loop um, by the same name, Center of the World. And basically what it does is it looks at the um, future of the circle interchange. So here you see an exhibition of the gallery models, photo montages, um, the site model of the central area. And then in another room we had um, a kind of black box with some videos, which I'll show you some. So of course here's the site, which I'm sure, you know, is everyone here from Chicago? Right, so you guys all know the Circle Interchange. Um, there's the site. And when I first arrived here five years ago, of course, Chicago was celebrating the Burnham Plan Centennial. Many of us in the room know the history, which I'm not going to go into, but of course the plan was commissioned by the Commercial Club. And having read it several times now, because I actually teach it in one of my courses, um, we read it cover to cover. I would say it's, yeah, cover to cover <laughs> in this day and age. Um, I would say, having read it several times, the plan is not so much a technical document as it is a vision for the future, a kind of fiction. And then, of course, the centerpiece is the Civic Center at Congress in Halstead, which was never built. And then, of course, instead of that monument to democracy, we have the third most tra congested traffic interchange in the country responsible for the loss of something like 25 million driving hours per year. <laughs> and as we well know, Chicago's downtown has expanded beyond the loop um, in the past uh, couple of decades to the north, south, and west. And in that time, the circle has become an increasingly problematic void, surrounded by new building density, massive transportation infrastructure, including three highways, the CTA Transit Blue Line, Interstate Bus Station, Union Rail Terminal, and of course the Chicago River. My basic point is that the city has a hole in its heart. But fortunately, we have a president who is a Chicagoan and can not only say, but can also spell the word infrastructure. And so apparently can our new mayor, who recently announced the development of an infrastructure trust. And um, part of my work is what I would say is more technical research, looking at what the circle does to the city and some possibilities for its reconfiguration. So of course there are some maps which show the circle at the nexus of four different sections of the city, how it shows how it fractures the city into four different quadrants. Then of course also questioning the termination point of the Eisenhower Expressway, which is the interstate coming in from the west. These are important technical issues, but I would say not the drivers. As a designer, I understand that the technical solution must be driven by some kind of urbanistic aspirations. So for me, the question about the circle is really how do we imagine a political, cultural, or economic force big enough, powerful enough to actually transform this incredibly complex site? A lot of this comes out of the lessons learned from the Atlantic Yards project, the big lesson being you can't sit around waiting, right? Many of us passed by, I lived in that neighborhood in Fort Greene, Brooklyn um, for a few years and there were many uh, colleagues of mine who had lived there even longer and had passed by that site every day and never imagined that it would be anything other than what it was, a sunken rail yard dividing these neighborhoods. Then of course one day, Forest City Ratner shows up with their architect with a vision 
for what it would become. And I would say that, had been, that was a failure on the part of the design community to not think more uh, anticipatorily about um, what the future of that site could be. So when I arrived in Chicago, of course, having that, uh, that experience in the past, of course, drew me, was one of the things that drew me to the site. But back to the story. So how do we imagine a future for this site? How do we imagine some force big enough, powerful enough to actually transform this incredibly complex place? So this project really sets out to reimagine the center of Chicago as the center of the world. So that brings us to the next topic, futurity. So as I've already begun to suggest, um, for me, urbanism is a future-oriented practice. Uh, the long-time horizons of urban projects not only encourage, but also demand that we place our minds decades into the future. The challenge, though, is that cities are indeterminate systems, always changing in ways that are difficult to predict, uh, much less control. And urbanism is increasingly challenged, then, by the fact that many of its techniques, at least urban design, maybe less so in planning, but many of its techniques are inherited from the practice of architecture. So such tools, architectural tools like drawings, are based on the stillness of architecture. But cities, unlike sing singular buildings, are neither fixed um, nor predictable in their behavior, as we well know. So I'm exploring the use of scenario planning, which I'm sure several of you are familiar with, as a core technique for urban design that addresses the challenges of uncertainty. Scenario planning, of course, is a conceptual tool used by major industries and institutions, also planners, um, very often to explore diverse and plausible futures. These explorations then inform the structure of long-term strategies. So, of course, an a great introductory book to the field, um, The Art of the Long View by Peter Schwartz. And then this diagram on the right that shows how scenario planning is interested in the relationship between possible, probable, and desired futures. Um, desired futures, I think, being typically what people like me tend to deal in, right? Um, but what's curious about that is how the realm of desired futures falls about halfway in, halfway out of the field of the possible, which would explain uh, the kind of low um, completion rate, I think, for, for uh, architectural projects or big urban projects. And of course, scenario planning is especially interested in targeting that smaller space of probable futures, which even though it is smaller, is firmly by definition within the field of the possible. So typically, as a designer, um, as an urban designer, as an architect, we think of time as a line, where we move forward from the present directly as possible towards some kind of desired future. One site, one project. But the model I'm interested in here is one which looks at the future as a space, where we navigate among divergent scenarios and possibilities. So what's different about this project that I'm showing, or I'm going to show, is um, that it proposes a multiplicitous rather than a singular future for the city. So these are a series of nine models on the right, three versions of three different narratives, um, of which you'll see a couple. And this is a um, sort of esoteric diagram on the left um, that illustrates the notion of setting up a relational field where each proposal is understood uh, only in correspondence with the others. None is allowed to slip back into the position of becoming a desired future. The exhibition, um, which I showed you earlier, was designed um, in many ways not to be a nerdy architecture show, what I call a nerdy architecture show with a lot of text and diagrams, etc. And on the right, you see these electric Susans, what I call electric Susans, which were a way of elevating the status of some of these fast and cheap um, sketch models to the level of either precious artifacts or rare laboratory specimens. What's been very curious is that over the past couple of years, my work has received increasing amount of attention from the art world, um, which may not be surprising seeing what you've seen so far, but I actually find that also interesting because I'm, I'm always interested in kind of reaching a broader audience than let's say the professional audience or even the construction industry. Um, if we are to be public intellectuals, I think we have to be very polyvocal and be able to kind of access these different different um, spaces where the work can sort of air itself out. So a little bit of sausage making. The project begins very simply with a field of what if Chicago were Washington, D.C.? What if Chicago were a holy city? What if socialism wins? And the idea was to kind of find the blind spots in our thinking created by official or desired futures and expose alternative 
sometimes even conflicting realities. This is one of the jobs of scenario thinking, scenario planning. Um, there's also the talk very often of the notion of the minority report, the dissenting opinion. So a great example of that is, you know, before, um, before 2007, everyone in America basically believed that the value of your house would always go up, right, which was a desired future, until, of course, one day it didn't. There were a couple of people around, for example, Nouriel Roubini, famously that economist now known as Dr. Doom, who was basically saying to everyone, we're in a bubble, this can't go on like this forever, and now he's sort of famous. And he issued, he had issued a minority report. We also talk about black swans very often. So what if it doesn't? But the questions outlined in red um, are, were the ones that were chosen to organize the three scenarios um, because they seemed somehow the most powerful. So all those questions get mapped out onto, back out onto this kind of um, Cartesian diagram that you saw earlier. And the, the red cloud, what I call indeterminacy, is produced by the play of differences between the terms. For me, these discrepancies are positive and become some of the most compelling opportunities for invention within a narrative and eventually the architecture itself. Obviously, of course, scenario planning is neither um, neither objective science nor magic. It's not about predicting the future. And if we look um, a little more closely, so some examples which you'll see play themselves out, simple questions like what if everyone owns their homes in the future? What if no one owns their homes? And sometimes it, it, it also tries to recognize, the project also tries to recognize that the future is riddled with inconsistencies, right? That both things could be true. And very often these contradictions become uh, the greatest opportunities for invention within the projects. So the final idea, utopia. So most of our, us are familiar with the spelling of utopia with a U, meaning no place. I become increasingly interested in its other spelling, utopia with an E, which means actually the blessed or the fortunate place. Um, in a short passage from his essay, The Foundations of Utopia, Lewis Mumford says, quote, the chief business of utopians was summed up by Voltaire in the final injunction of Candide. Let us cultivate our garden. The aim of the real utopian is not the culture of his environment, most distinctly not the culture and above all, above all not the exploitation of some other person's environment. Hence, the size of our utopia may be big or little, it may begin in a single village. It may embrace a whole region. He goes on later to say that the notion that no effective change can be brought about in society until millions of people have deliberated upon it and willed it is one of the rationalizations which are dear to the lazy and ineffectual. Since the first step towards utopia is the reconstruction of our idola, the foundations for utopia can be laid wherever we are without further ado." End quote. I think, um, I think that the utopian aspiration is something that always rests either implicitly or uh, explicitly at the core of any good uh, design project, any good urban design project. I would say it's really about the persistent ambition to construct, construct as I said uh, earlier, other possible and perhaps even somehow better worlds. So another video. In 2010, when the Illinois State Assembly legalized low-profit, limited-liability corporations, 3. L. C's, it opened the door to exponential growth in socialist enterprises over the next decades. Simultaneous disinvestment in Wall Street only propelled these new businesses faster, producing new socialist capital markets. Eventually a movement arose to create a centralized exchange for these social investments. Due to its diversification in commodities, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange had not suffered the same decline as its counterparts in New York. Therefore it was in prime position to capitalize on this economic revolution by creating a new stock exchange for the socialist economy. Because it relied so heavily on direct social interaction, the new exchange had to be centrally located. When the board of the Merck began looking for sites, the area around the circle interchange emerged as the best choice, given the infrastructure already in place. However, it was also evident that a major reconfiguration would be necessary 
for optimized and efficient service to the new Chicago Social Stock Exchange, the CSSE. This new facility provided an opportunity to build a complete multimodal transit terminal beneath the circle, uniting the elevated, metra, Amtrak and interstate bus services. Something also had to be done about the persistent traffic jam around the circle. Congestion within the city had dramatically increased because cheap renewable electricity made driving nearly cost-free. But for the exchange itself, the board understood the potential for an entirely new operational model designed for the kinds of investments and financial instruments they were dealing with. For example, in these new markets, public space became an extremely valuable commodity. This was partly due to the fact that architecture was essentially free once designers developed business models that eliminated the need for clients. As the architecture boom progressed, the demand for public space in Chicago far exceeded the supply. So the model of the interior trading floor was transformed into a new kind of outdoor plaza dedicated to the buying and selling of socially directed goods and services. Artworks became more lucrative investments than dollars or euros because of persistent instability in currency markets. So a new Chicago art, Mart, was included in the CSSE, as well. Farming emerged as a more valuable use of land than speculative real estate, as Europe and Asia's demand for American agricultural exports steadily increased. This trend resulted in the demolition and de-densification of large portions of Chicago's central area. And water soon surpassed oil in value, as had been predicted for some time. New port facilities were developed for storage and shipping of this commodity, directly from Municipal Pier No. 1, formerly known as Navy Pier, and up Lake Michigan, toward the Northwest Passage, which was now navigable, for most of the year. Chicago's proletarian culture, was fertile ground for these new enterprises. High demand, for investment opportunities, among the city's super-wealthy foundations, meant that a new class of social printers, found themselves awash, in grants and venture capital. Extreme, income disparities, and the elimination, of nearly all government-sponsored social programs, had effectively transformed much of the U.S., into a developing country. But for this new breed of entrepreneur, these conditions also created an endless list of opportunities, for initiating public benefit projects. Shifting to the hybrid, socialist market economy, provided a brilliant solution for the United States, after China and India's near-complete takeovers, of both the manufacturing and service sectors. India's entrenched caste system, and China's enduring, communist political structure, ensured that social entrepreneurship, would not have the wild success, it found in the U.S. Because of their personal investment, people worked extra days, for longer hours. But work also became less laborious, and more of a social activity. Free, workers' clubs, sprung up throughout Chicago's central area. Most businesses, in order to maintain their flexibility, and responsiveness, stayed fairly small, often sharing facilities with each other through cooperative, arrangements. New types of offices and fabrication facilities, were invented, in order to accommodate the constant fluctuations, in demand for space. After a century of political, and social struggle, Chicago reclaimed its status, as a space of opportunity. And its central area became a powerful engine, of social development, and cultural production. More than a market, the Chicago Socialist Stock Exchange, was a metropolitan center, quite unlike any seen before. Through the exploitation of this new economy, Chicago gave the world, a utopian vision, of what cities should be. A contested, social space. A center, of negotiation. An architecture, of solidarity. And, a landscape, of collective, prosperity. So that was one of three videograms which I've produced for the project. It's an original fiction. I write these things. Um, it's, of course, composed of images of the models, diagrams, appropriated imagery from the news, 
from other artists, photographers who've done work on Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. And so here you can see, again, some of the models. Um, so this was the economic scenario, the Chicago Socialist Stock Exchange. And again, it started with simple questions, right? What if socialism becomes profitable? And for me, it, you know, these are not like questions that come out of nowhere, but they really come out of reactions to things that we see happening today, kind of global uh, crisis in capitalism and the simultaneous rise of movements like Occupy Wall Street or things like... Um, new uh, inventions like social entrepreneurship, or sh I should say innovations, or things like micro-lending, et cetera, et cetera, the kind of obsession with uh, urban agriculture that we see around the world today. And of course, my take on some of these things is a little bit um, contrarian or ironic. Okay, well, what if we take, for example, the, the obs obsession with the kind of urban panacea du jour of urban agriculture and push it to its extreme. What happens if farming does become more valuable than real estate? What does that mean, for example, the other sort of uh, typical urban session obsession today, which is density, right? How do we reconcile those, those two different notions? And then, of course, an interest, again, in certain visionary projects from the past. Um, one of my favorite projects that I refer to uh, often in my work is um, Frank Lloyd Wright's Broadacre City, which again was a visionary project, but in many ways prescient in terms of how it imagined the kind of continuing expansion of the American metropolis. And questions like what if public space is commoditized, which in many ways it already is, right? Increasingly public space, especially in the United States, is, uh, is um, built and then even controlled by private entities. But what if, on the other hand, architecture somehow got free, which is a personal fantasy of mine, of course, as an architect. And then here is, a, um, again, one of these large photo montages. This is almost the true scale of the photo montage, like sl slightly... Uh, larger. These, it's, the actual one is about 42 inches by 60 inches. Um, and this is just one version, one view of one version of that project. But you see it again as kind of a constructivist assemblage. Um, the interior trading floor is kind of spilling out right, as an outdoor civic space with the large art mart, which floats, um, opportunity to use a laser pointer, which floats above. Um, and upon that rest a cube and a tower dedicated to um, administrative functions. And then there's a political scenario. I won't show the video for this one. But it basically supposes that after drowning under three hurricanes in five years, the nation's capital has to be relocated. You laugh, but <laughs> we know that sea level rise threatens Washington, D.C. So I'll take that as nervous laughter. <laughs> right. Well, in this case, it relocates, of course, to Chicago. Right? So what if, um, because of course, again, we're reimagining Chicago as the center of the world. So what if Washington, D.C. isn't sustainable? Questions like, what if international borders are open? So could we start to think also of the new nation's capital as um, you know, a different kind of place which relates more to something like the United Nations? So an alternative title for this, um, this project for me was also World Town. First city, I call it First City World Town. So it's testing, this image tests the idea of federal buildings as skyscrapers, because of course they would be in Chicago, in, but also in a future of rapid growth due to immigration and increased international exchange. What if high-speed rail actually works? So the idea of um, creating a mall over the Kennedy Expressway that also shelters a new high-speed rail terminus. And then the third um, scenario, which I'll show the video for in a moment, asks what if there could be a new holy city in Chicago. Um, before I end with this video, I'd like to thank um, everyone here at the APA, of course, for uh, the invitation. Thank everyone for attending, um, especially on this kind of first day of winter. Um, it's interesting for me to come and talk to um, planners for a couple of reasons. One, because 
I feel like I spend a lot of time, you know, I'm not a planner, but I spend a lot of time uh, working with planners or working on projects that overlap, of course, that cross over into planning. But also, in an interesting way, I think it alleviated me from the responsibility of showing you anything actually useful. Um, <laughs> what I hope to do today was, to, though, to show some things which could be either um, inspiring or challenging, etc. So I look forward to some questions and some conversation. That being said, um, here we go with the final videogram. Millions of pilgrims immediately descended upon the city of Chicago when Oprah Winfrey left this earth on her 120th birthday. These hordes of global disciples knew her simply as the Oprah, and the institutional complex that she left behind became a holy city. She had sold the Oprah Winfrey Network in 2015, and returned to Chicago, because California's financial collapse, had made the growth, of her new media empire, in Los Angeles, seem increasingly unlikely. As fate, would have it, the simultaneous financial crisis in Illinois, provided the opening she needed, to re-establish her good works, in Chicago. Mayor Rahm Emanuel's, Infrastructure Development Trust, was a solution to the state and federal budget cuts, that had left Chicago's roads, and transit systems, crumbling. Sensing an opportunity, Miss Winfrey proposed that, in exchange for an unprecedented capital investment, she would receive development rights, to certain sites in the central area. Former Mayor Daley, and Mayor Emanuel, served, as her brokers, with the Illinois legislature, and Obama administration. By the time the deal was done, Miss Winfrey had acquired perpetual leases on air rights over Interstate 290, the Circle Interchange, and the Kennedy Expressway. No one could have anticipated the great developments that followed. By the time Oprah Media, commonly known as OM, became fully operational in ten short years, Miss Winfrey's expanding wealth had driven her notorious generosity, to even greater heights. In 2020, she offered to pay off the mortgage debt, of any property owners, in the central area, if they relinquished, all, rights, to any future sales. Not surprisingly, most of the wealthy declined, but the vast majority of middle class business and homeowners, willingly accepted, since their property values, had not increased, for 15 years. She also built new housing blocks, for the poor. Impeccable management, and family development programs, ensured that most people, only lived there, for a few years. Thus eliminating, any comparisons, to the public housing, that had once, plagued, Chicago. And by accepting these gifts, the poor and middle classes, all effectively became Miss Winfrey's subjects. The people had neither willingness, nor ability, to separate their fates, from hers. The ruined, and corrupted public education system came next. Her scholarship endowment, of the University of Illinois, at Chicago, made college nearly free to all citizens of the state, for the foreseeable future. UIC was renamed, the Chicago, Free, University. Miss Winfrey also built what by all measures, was the world's largest charter school. She provided a place for every child, living within the city. She guaranteed widespread, total equality of education. Every family, rich and poor, sent their children, since her school surpassed even the best private institutions, both in terms of resources, and student achievement. Her triumphs, over the worst, and most chronic, urban problems, earned Miss Winfrey the nickname, mother, of us, all. Her investments had a dramatic effect, on the urban economy in just a few years. The number of skilled employees, began to multiply exponentially, as Chicago Free University expanded its enrollment, and people from around the world, were attracted to the prosperity, and culture of wellness, that she created. Miss Winfrey's empire, grew, as her followers grew, and the central area became her, company, town. The architect, Daniel Burnham, dreamed of the white city. And his dream was finally realized, 
upon the foundations of Miss Winfrey's stewardship. After her hostile takeover of Google in 2025, the Ohm Library over the Circle Interchange became the undisputed center of global knowledge and communication. This archive and its sister institutions renewed Chicago as a center of enlightenment and spirituality on the level of Vatican City or Mecca. And thus, it was. The Oprah ascended from icon to guru to prophet by building a radiant city of inescapable benevolence, boundless wealth, relentless beauty, and transcendent power. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So let's open the floor up to some questions. <laughs> and just as a reminder, I'm going to come around with the microphone so we can record your questions for the podcast. So just put your hand up and I'll come to you. Hello, my name is Michael Deverman. I'm a senior at Maine South High School um, and I'm looking to go to IIT next year, hopefully. Um, Great. And my question is <laughs> my, that my job is done. I get my toaster <laughs> this semester. <laughs> Excellent. So my question is that these are some pretty visionary ideas, and like the <clears throat> the ways that you are presenting them are pretty not radical, but they're very very out there. So, what curriculum changes are you planning to change in the landscape architecture and urbanism program to implement these ideals and these? Um, kind of creative forms of um, displaying your work in? That's a great question. So one of the things um, that I'm interested in, uh, one of the, well, first let me say this. With this idea of creating a program in Master of Landscape Architecture and Urbanism, we want to retain the existing kind of professional core curriculum in landscape architecture, right? So we're looking at this new curriculum as an augmentation of that. So the question is, what do we add? Um, you know, I'm very interested in how we can train people not necessarily to produce a particular kind of landscape architecture, but how we can prepare a certain kind of professional who has, let's say, a broader outlook than conventional practice. Conventional practice is fine, but we're also, I think, going to be interested in um, in, in seeing if we can produce, let's say, the Burnhams, the Olmsteads, the Hilbersheimers of tomorrow, people who can run a conventional design practice or become heads of city planning or become housing, uh, a secretary of housing and urban development or become a mayor, right, or become a re real estate developer, et cetera, et cetera. So it really has to do with the kind of diversification of both ambition, ambitions in the curriculum. So we're looking at adding things like public and private development. So kinds of courses you would find in, um, you know, often in a planning curriculum or in a, an urban design curriculum, but not so often in a landscape architecture program. Um, our students already take um, a course in uh, planning policy and law, which I think we want to retain that kind of thing. But also emphasizing things like, bring in things like scenario planning or scenario thinking, um, you know, teaching about narrative, storytelling. I think so much of success in, in all of the design fields or just in professional life has to do with the ability to communicate, not just with drawings and models, but also being able to write, being able to speak, and being able to tell stories, right, that engage people in a way which excites them enough to actually do the kind of, if not even crazy, incredibly expensive and resource-consuming things that we propose. So those are some of the kinds of, um, I would say not even just changes, but uh, expansions that we're interested in bringing to the program. Of course, we'll still teach things like plants, but plants are just part of the palette, right? There's also, um, you know, landscape is about so many things in the city now. Water, power, landscape is also concrete, it's steel, it's infrastructure, and it runs right up to architecture and through it, et cetera. So it's really about a kind of how we have a broader, broader outlook in terms of what we're doing with landscape architecture. Thank you very much. I loved your presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. See you next fall. <laughs> 
I will freely admit I'm not sure if I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, but something I was uh, thinking about during your presentation, first off, uh, I'm a public sector planner. Um, so almost focusing in on more a deliverable part of, of some of the um, items that you touched upon, mm -hmm. uh, more specifically the scenario planning. Um, what, what would you recommend or what's one of the critical uh, points that we can focus on in scenario planning to provide deliverables? And I'm almost wondering if it's more trying to find almost the paradox because you're asking opposite questions and if the opposite questions can both be possible then is that the deliverable outcome in scenario planning yeah well it's it's i think an interesting important question first of all with this project this center of the world project i explain it to people it's kind of like a concept car in my studio Right? So, you know, GM makes concept cars. You will never buy that concept car. They will never sell it to you. But what they do is they strip mine it for parts. And let's say, you know, the fuel injection system might show up in your Prius or something like this, right? Right. So, yeah, you, you have, exactly, in fashion design, there's haute couture, and then different pieces of that show up in the stuff that you can buy at Target later. So, um, that's how this project sort of functions. That being said, what do you take out of it that can actually be used in practice, I think is an interesting, important question. Um, the history of the future, that particular narrative model, I think is a very interesting one. Because what it does is it puts us 40 years into the future, and very often when we're making plans, it's like go to 2040, it's in the future. Right? But we're always somehow still in the way we tell the narrative, we say these things will happen. Right? What I think is interesting about the history of the future as a narrative model is it, what it does is, is it puts everything in the past tense. It says, these things have already happened, right? Which automatically, I think, brings, you, brings your brain into that world, which is, I think, is a very different way of storytelling, and just by changing the tense, right? So I think that's a tool that can easily be used more in our profession. You know, video is being used very much now in the design professions, right? But we use it, we all tend to use it the same way. We're proposing a project, again, that's off in the future. And what the video does is it explains the project, right? It's kind of a video that explains. These videos don't try to explain the project, how it works. What it tries to do is it tries to paint a picture of the world in which that kind of project might exist. And for me, that's, um, that's, for me, potentially a much more powerful model. Because again, the things that we propose are so far off into the future, so complex, that they're riddled with all kinds of uncertainty. And for me, this is a kind of narrative which is much more open, and it also allows people, varying constituents, to enter into it. No matter what kind of audience I play these things in front of, whether it's an art audience, whether it's a professional audience, whether, um, whether they're professional artists, or whether they're just people who are interested in art or anyone, right? Lay people, uh, accountants, whatever, they just, people just sort of get it. I have never made anything else as an architect, right? Not a drawing or a model or anything else that people just sort of get it on their own. <laughs> and I think in our professions, that's critical, right? How do you engage people into the project in a way that's sort of easy for them to enter the project? This is the best, thing that I've ever done that does that easily. Like, I don't have to explain those things. People just sort of get it for different reasons. So I think that, I think that it's potentially incredibly um, useful, and it, uh, again, in terms of helping people imagine a world on which a particular project or even multiple projects might, you know, might exist, might be necessitated. I think that could be incredibly useful for us as, as professionals. Does that answer the question? Yeah. That could be one deliverable, right? right? But then, of course, there's always this question of, well, in the end, you need to move towards one project. I think maybe that's true in the case of architecture. But I think, again, our experience shows us in a case of planning, urban design, I think it's a very problematic model because we know the project is always changing as you move along. The city is always in process of being made. It's an open work. So I think we need to you know, struggle, even though it's maybe harder, 
in some cases, struggle with the notion that um, we have to set up a kind of way of working in which things become more flexible. I mean, again, that's why I like to start with the, um, the story about the Atlantic Yards. It's the kind of story we all know, right? Someone comes in with the project, and then the context changes. The economic context changes. The political context changes. You know, the designer then gets frustrated because they had to go back to the drawing board five times, right? And eventually they just quit. They throw up their hands and say, like, look, enough. I can't do this anymore. But what would happen if we came into the project from the first with a range of possibilities, right? And then we could work between them. I think it would just be easier on everyone. It's easier on the developer. It's easier on the people who live in the neighborhood because then they can maybe start to enter into some kind of more flexible negotiation. Well, that makes sense. This part of this thing makes sense, but that other part makes sense over there. Can we start to combine those different ideas into a third way, et cetera, et cetera? Um, you know, because we know these big projects always become a negotiation, how do we set it up as a negotiation from the beginning as opposed to just like, here's the answer? And there's certainly a threshold in there. And there's certainly a threshold within there um, that you touch upon the size of the project. Mm -hmm. And that, that can maybe be two or more factors. Just the sheer size, meaning mm -hmm. um, acreage, or even just the duration in which this development may take place. And I think those two, there's a threshold there because an individual site that one developer plans sure. to build over two years, it doesn't really- Reduces the uncertainty. Right. Of course, right. of course, absolutely. You know, if I'm doing a single family house right on one lot, this kind of stuff isn't, doesn't make so much sense, even though it still infects my thinking, right? Because, you know, again, even in those situations, things happen, right? Somebody loses their job or somebody gets rich suddenly or they have a baby or whatever. The, the fundamental point is uncertainty exists and I think that we have to find ways in our practices to maybe embrace uncertainty as opposed to always repressing it somehow. Uh, Mark Lundgren, enjoyed your presentation very much, very mind expanding. Uh, a lot's been written uh, recently about planning uh, losing its way in terms of not being uh, the creative, expansive, visionary process that it once was. And I wanted to know what your views are with regard to the nexus or the in intertwining of architecture, urban design, and planning, and how it all works together in your view, or, or what, what the synergy should be in your view. Well, um, the specific synergies. I mean, I think that, uh, well, I think that it's unfortunate, right, that, you know, we have so many examples of where, at least in the United States, right, planning has been, I think, to a certain degree discredited. Of course, in Chicago, it's now, there's no Department of City Planning, there's Department of Housing and Economic Development, right? The name tells you everything, economic development. Or I lived in Cincinnati for a while. I practiced in Cincinnati, which famously disbanded its planning department back in the mid-90s. They've reconstituted it now, but it's not the, same, not the same thing. I think that's unfortunate. There are certain historical reasons. But I think, it has, I think it's just symptomatic of the, again, the kind of neoliberal era in which we live, in which there's this kind of dominant ideology that the market will provide in many facets of life. So we're all in that kind of struggle um, together. Uh, in terms of the synergies, I mean, for me, it's very easy. It's, it's almost like not even a question from, you know, because, for example, the Atlantic Yards project, I immediately found myself in cahoots with planners, with activists, with social workers, with politicians, et cetera, et cetera. The kind of interdisciplinarity of the exercise, you know, with landscape architects um, was sort of happened naturally, right? And we all kind of, um, you know, found our places in the project and found ways of collaborating. So it wasn't so much a, a kind of question. I mean, there are a lot of debates right now. There's a debate that's been going on in the academy about, you know, between landscape architects or the landscape urbanists and 
architects about whether you know landscape or architecture should be the basic building block of the city. I find these kinds of territorial debates completely absurd, right? They're totally absurd um, and basically and and really sort of counterproductive. So I guess I'm sort of agreeing with what the question implies that the synergies um, should always should always be there. Um, because you know, how do you, you know, how do you, uh, you know, again, how do you move the world forward without it? Especially in the urban context, those things are always inextricably linked: real estate, architecture, planning, development, infrastructure, uh, engineering, etc. So, you know, I don't know how f- we move forward without them. I never intended to become an urban designer. I went to graduate school for architecture. But I was interested in what was happening outside the building or what kind of preceded the building. They weren't interested in teaching me that in the architecture program, so I went across the, you know, across the tray or across the, the building and saw that they were doing these things in urban design. So I got involved to just become a better architect, but also have a broader conversation. Um, so for me, the synergies are very, you know, it's they happen very naturally. I don't know if that's a direct or specific answer to the question, but I'm in favor of what the question implies. <laughs> well, I think for the sake of time, let that be the final word. Let's have one more round of applause for Marshall Brown. Thanks. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Marshall Brown for a thought-provoking and informative program on the speculative city. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.